The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. The title of my message for you tonight is Behold Him, Behold Him. We'll get into what I mean by that in just a moment, but I want to start by reading an old quote. This comes from the pen of William Arthur Ward, and and here's what he said. He said, whatever gets your attention gets your time. Whatever gets your time gets you. Whatever gets you becomes your master. So there's a lot of truth to that statement. Whatever gets your attention, ultimately will get you. Now, this is something that advertisers have known for a long time, which is why they work so hard to grab our eyes, to get our attention, because they know if they can get our attention, then they can get to our wallets. And that's why advertisers and and businesses spend so much money annually on advertisements. In that same vein, if it feels like you're being bombarded with more advertisements than ever, that's for good reason. It's because we are. (laughs) I went back and found out that back in the 1970s, on average, a person would be exposed to somewhere between 400 and 1,600 advertisements a day. That was a lot. I mean, 1,600 ads trying to get you to buy something, do something, go somewhere, give something. That's a lot. And yet it's nothing compared with what we have to deal with today. You see, according to marketing experts, in our day and age, the average person sees between, get this, 4,000 and 10,000 ads a day. Think about it. When you're just scrolling on social media, or whether it's news media, or whatever you're doing on your phone, or perhaps if you're listening to the radio, or if you're one of those old-fashioned people who still watches TV, you know, you just have ads all over the place, and everything is just assaulting us, and bombarding us, and competing for our attention, and for most of us, most of the time, it's just a bunch of white noise, and it's somewhat easy to just scroll, scroll through the ads. But then occasionally, something will happen that is so impactful, so significant, that it captivates and captures the attention of seemingly the whole world. I'll give you a few examples. For instance, back in 1963, after John F. Kennedy was assassinated there in Texas, his, his funeral services happened, and a reported 180 million people tuned in to watch that ceremony. 180 million people. That's, that's a lot. By the way, that number represented, at the time, 93% of American homes. More recently, some 300 million people tuned in to watch, um, what's his name, Prince William and Kate Middleton tie the knot. They're at Windsor Castle in 2011. Then if you rewind the tape back to 1969, 
500 million people watched Neil Armstrong step out of that Apollo spacecraft and take what was for him a small step for man, but a great leap for mankind as he became the first man to step foot on the moon. So that's a lot. 500 million people tuned in to watch that event. And then get this, more than a billion people watched Elvis shake and strut and sing back in 1973 for his Aloha from Hawaii concert. And I just want to throw this in there as a little added bonus for those who are curious. The most watched YouTube video of all time. Does anybody have a guess what that might be? Okay, it's, it's Baby Shark. You remember that one? Baby Shark. Da, 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 da. Oh, now you're going to have that running through your head for the rest of the night. You're welcome. 13.1 billion people have watched that song over and over and over again. So why am I going down this rabbit trail and telling you all of these seemingly innocuous thoughts? Well, because in our text today, Pontius Pilate is going to invite all of us to give our attention to Jesus. Now, there aren't too many places, too many instances where I would, as your pastor, encourage you to listen to Pontius Pilate. He's not exactly, you know, a model for us of godly living. Yet this is one instance where I would encourage you to do exactly as he says. And so let's do that. Let's spend our time looking at Jesus. Look with me in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple. And then they went up to him again and again saying, Hail! King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Here is the man is what Pilate said. But more literally, that phrase should be translated. And if you have perhaps like the, the old King James or the new King James version of the Bible, it renders the verse this way. Behold the man. And in your notes, you notice I left some blanks. And that's because I want to keep your attention. I want, I want you to have to write that down so you can fill in the blank now. That's the first clue. The first clue is behold the man. And that's what Pilate said. In the Greek, it's eyed ho anthropos. Behold, it's not a word that's all too common anymore, is it? Not a word that we use often, but maybe it's time we bring it back. After all, it's a very biblical word. In fact, did you know that this word shows up in the Bible no less than 1,298 times, over and over and over again? The Bible is trying to grab our attention and captivate our hearts and get us to look at the things of God. It means to linger, the word does, or to gaze upon. It's not just talking about a casual look or a passing glance. No, no, no. It's talking about laying hold of something and being so enraptured, so captivated by it that you can't look away. As an example, when I first saw my wife all the way back in 1997, when I was in high school at Rancho Bernardo High School, I didn't just look at her. I beheld her beauty. 
And this is what the Lord is calling on us to do through Pilate. When Pilate said to the crowd, behold the man, he no doubt had a mocking tone. I mean, he's saying, here's the guy that you guys find so dangerous and threatening. Look at him, or at least take a look at what's left of him. You see, Jesus certainly didn't look like much at this point. He had endured a series of trials throughout the night. He had gotten no sleep. And notice too, in verse one, he had just endured a scourging or a flogging. Now, John uses just eight words to describe the flogging that Jesus received, almost as though it were an incidental detail to the story. But make no mistake about it, flogging was no small ordeal. When the Romans scourged someone, They would take the victim and they would strip him down to his waist and they would take his hands and they would tie them to a post above his head and then two big, burly Roman soldiers would stand on either side of him and they had in their hands these, they were called flagellum, these whips. You remember Indiana Jones with the whip. Imagine nine of those all coming out from a single braided thread. In the ends of these these long leather strips were embedded shards of glass and bone and, and lead. And they would take these and on either side they would take turns laying into the victim over and over and over again. Now, the goal of the flogging was to elicit a confession from the prisoner. And the idea was... The more you confessed, the lighter the blows became. And so you can imagine, guys are confessing by the second or third blow. Whether or not they did it, they don't care. They're just confessing to, to escape the pain. But, but not so with Jesus. You see, Jesus was innocent. He had nothing to confess. And therefore, he was silent. And what that ensured was he got the full weight of each and every blow. I found online a medical doctor's description of the effects, the physical effects of flogging. And here's what this doctor wrote. And I quote, the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mess of torn, bleeding tissue. Can we behold Jesus It's no wonder that victims of Roman flogging seldom survive, but it gets worse, far worse, I'm afraid. After the flogging, we're told here that the soldiers twisted together a crown, not of gold, not gilded with gems or diadems, but but rather a crown of thorns. It dug into his skull, which is bursting with capillaries. You can imagine the amount of blood that streamed down his face. And then they took a purple robe, the color of royalty, and they draped it around him keeping in mind what he had just gone through. You ever been to the sun and been in the sun rather on a hot day and you get really sunburned and then later that night you go to put on your t-shirt and it's like, oh, ow, ow. You know, the the t-shirt hurts on your back because of the sunburn. 
Compare that with what Jesus just endured, having literally the flesh torn from his very back and then being draped in this purple robe. Imagine the pain that he was experiencing. Then adding insult to injury, it says they mocked him and they hit him. In Matthew's account of this story, he tells us that they blindfolded Jesus before they hit him and they they smote him with a rod. You know, in football, it's almost football season. And in football, the scariest hits are always the ones that the quarterback takes from his blind side, right? That's why one of the highest paid positions in football is typically your left tackle because he's got to protect the quarterback's blind side and the quarterback is a really, um, you know, important position. But if he's dropping back like this, he can't often see with the helmet what's coming from behind him and some of the scariest hits and some of the, 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 uh, the most damaging hits, dangerous hits in, in football come from the quarterback's blind side. Well, why am I telling you that? Well, if Jesus is blindfolded before he's hit, you know, if you're in a fight, you can, you can sometimes see the punch coming and so you can flinch and you can move with it and, and cause it to glance off of you a little bit and absorb some of the blow. But when you're blindfolded, you can't see a thing and Jesus takes the full impact, the brunt of each and every hit. And then they asked him to prophesy, tell us who just hit you. And you want to know the irony of all ironies? Jesus knew the answers. He knew exactly who had just hit him. But he not only knew their name, he knew their parents' name. He knew their history. He knew their fears. He knew their dreams. He knew every detail of their lives, yet he allowed it and he kept his mouth shut. All of this kind of culminates in a trauma that is unimaginable. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus became unrecognizable as a result of his beatings. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. This is in your notes. It's Isaiah 52, verse 14. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Wow. Can you imagine? Can't even recognize him as a man. And then, can I add just one more detail? Matthew tells us again, this is piecing together some of the various accounts we have of this scene, and and Matthew tells us that in addition to the physical torture that Jesus endured, it says, and they spat on him. It's in that culture, even to this day, even in our culture, the height of disrespect to spit on someone. And to think who they were spitting on. The Gospels record a number of instances where where Jesus, he used his own saliva, his own spit. And he mixed it with the earth and he rubbed it in the eyes of a blind man. And then he sent him to the pool of Siloam where he washed and he came back seeing. On another occasion, Jesus spit in a man's eyes to heal. And he who used his own spit to heal others himself was spat upon as a sign of utter contempt and disrespect. It was an ultimate insult. And so Pilate says, here is the man. Behold the man. And yet when he says that, I want to peel back another layer for you of understanding. You see, he had no way of knowing this. Pilate did. He had no way of understanding. But when he said that, listen, guys, this is so crazy. He was actually quoting 
from a 500-year-old messianic prophecy written by the hand of Zechariah. It's true. 500 years before Pilate or Jesus was even born, Zechariah the prophet wrote these words, and I want to read them together with you out loud. This is Zechariah 6.12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So shall he be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Again, this was a well-known messianic prophecy about how a man who was the branch that connects him to David, Jesus, was of the line and lineage of David, a descendant of David, as the Messiah would be. This man, according to the pen of Zechariah, would come and he would sit on the throne and he would rule as both a priest and a king and he would build the temple. Now that's interesting, right? And I'll tell you why. Because one of the religious leaders' main problems with Jesus, one of the things they really had an issue with, was that Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up to life. And they thought he was talking about the physical structure of the temple, but John tells us, no, he was speaking concerning the temple of his own body. And so when Pilate says, behold the man, he's speaking to a highly religious group of men who were very familiar with the ancient writings and the, the scriptures and the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And so I wonder if any of them connected the dots between what Pilate says here and what Zechariah had written all those years before. For. But when Pilate says, behold, the man, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, can we just highlight Pilate's hypocrisy here for a moment? On the one hand, he's saying, there, this guy has done nothing wrong. But on the other hand, he's just had him flogged and beaten within an inch of his life. He thought that would satiate or, or slake the thirst for blood that the religious leaders had. But all it really did was whet their appetite for more. So he says, you take him, you crucify him. Now, when he said this, he wasn't really meaning it. The Jews didn't have the right to crucify anybody. So what he was actually saying is, this guy's been through enough. He's beaten, he's bloodied, he's, he, he's done. Let's just call it a day. And so the religious leaders see their opportunity to have Jesus killed slipping through their fingers. And so in verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, saying, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Okay, now the gloves are off. Right up until this point, they've been telling Pilate, Jesus is a rival king, and so he needs to be taken out. He's competing with Caesar. But now, Pilate knew all along that that was nothing but a smoke screen and, and that they had hatred in their hearts for Jesus. But now, they, 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 they pull the gloves off and they reveal, this guy says he's the son of God. And, and this has an effect on Pilate. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back into the palace and he said to Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
So Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. Pilate goes into Jesus and he's got a, he's kind of a superstitious guy. He believes in a, a pantheon of gods and deities and demigods. And so he goes into Jesus and he asks the question like, where do you come from again? Like, who are you? And why are these guys so angry with you? And it's an interesting question that he asks because Jesus could have answered it in a variety of ways, right? He could have said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth that place where he associated with, where he grew up. He could have said, I'm Jesus from Galilee, which served as the headquarters or the base of operations for his ministry for the past three and a half years. He could have said, I hail from Bethlehem, where he had been born to Mary 33 and a half years prior. Or he could have said, I come from eternity. I am the one who has always been. I am he who has no beginning, for I am the eternal and the great I am. He could have said any one of those things, but instead, notice how Jesus says nothing. He's silent. Earlier in the day, we looked at this last week, Jesus had tried to engage Pilate in a conversation, and he began to talk to him about the nature of truth, the importance of truth. And Pilate, in that instance, had brushed Jesus aside and said, truth, what is truth? And with that, he turned and walked away. He had silenced the voice of truth, as it were. And now he finds the voice of truth silent before him. And we're reminded in this moment of another prophecy concerning the Messiah. This comes to us from Isaiah 53, verse 7. Can we go ahead and read this together out loud? It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is silent before Pilate. And can I just make a a word of application here to our own lives? When you hear the voice of your conscience, when you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, when God is speaking to you, when you hear the voice of truth, let me encourage you tonight not to disregard that, disregard that, not to to silence that, not to stuff that down as Pilate did. For if you continually do that, you can eventually reach a point where you won't hear anything at all. Your ears can come, become so hardened and so calloused to the voice of God by saying no, 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 that you are no longer capable of hearing the voice of the Lord. I can't think of a scarier place to be. And I believe Pilate was on the verge of crossing that very line as he had held Jesus at arm's length. And yet, Jesus does speak to Pilate one more time. When he does speak to him for the final time, he does so only to remind him of who's really in charge. Pilate says, I have all the power, all the authority. Don't you know who I am? And Jesus says, oh, you've got it all wrong, Pilate. You would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. You see, Pilate thought he was calling the shots as though he held all the power. But in this moment, Jesus reveals that it is he who is in ultimate control. And this was all part of God's perfect plan. Now, Pilate 
sees that he's caught between a hard, a rock and a hard place. And so, uh, oh, whoops, whoops. I got turned to the wrong page. In verse 12, it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Okay, he's caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place, as I just said. On the one hand, he knows that Jesus is an innocent man. He keeps, he keeps relaying that fact. And he really wants to let him go. But on the other hand, he needs to appease the crowds. You see, Pilate had a certain amount of fear for Jesus. And it was a growing fear. But he had an even greater fear of what Caesar would do if he let things get out of control. And so throughout the story, what we find is Pilate trying to appease the people through compromise. He thought that having Jesus flogged would be enough, but it wasn't. They weren't going to be happy until Jesus' corpse was hanging from a cross. And by the way, can I just say that's always how it goes with the sin of compromise. The devil says, just give me an inch. And you give him an inch and he takes a mile. And compromise is a slippery slope. And it always takes you further than you wanted to go. It costs you more than you wanted to pay. And it keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. So for anyone in here who's playing with sin, compromising in any area of your life, learn from the example of Pilate who thought he could compromise. He thought he could please men and God. He thought he could please Caesar and Jesus. He thought he could appease his conscience and the crowd. And he found out you can't. Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. And so the story continues. When Pilate heard this, he had a different kind of fear. He brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And here he says, here is your king, or rather behold your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. As we kind of draw things to a close, we we saw the phrase, behold the man. The second fill in the blank is, behold your king. Behold your king. Picture the scene here. Pilate sits on his throne with a bloodied and beaten Jesus on one side of him and an angry mob on the other. And he has a choice to make. He can do what he knows is right in his heart and release Jesus. That'll appease his conscience. Or he can do what the crowds want him to do, the popular thing, and appease the mob. But he can't do both. So he says, behold your king. And then notice the crowds come back with, we have no king but Caesar. This is shocking that they would say that. After all, these are Jewish men who hated being occupied by Rome. Yet when confronted with the choice between Caesar, who represents man without God, or Jesus, who represents the rule of God, they go with Caesar. And by the way, this is always the choice The choice is between serving God or serving Caesar. You can please God or you can please man, but you can't do both and you have to choose. 
And so the people, they, they're, they're struggling in this moment to recognize Jesus as a king. And it's ultimately why they reject him, because he doesn't look the part. And, and on one level, we can't really blame them. I mean, he certainly doesn't look like a king. If anything, what he looks like is a sacrificial lamb. And I want to draw your attention to a detail at the beginning of verse 14, because I think that's exactly what John wants us to see. John tells us, in the middle of this unfolding drama, Jesus and Pilate and the angry mob, he says, and by the way, you should know that it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. And by the way, he wants you to know that it was noon when all of this was going down. Now, doesn't that sound a bit superfluous. I mean, who cares what time it is? Why would he include these seemingly unnecessary details? And here's the answer. While it seems perhaps out of place to us, John's original audience would have immediately picked up on the connection he was trying to make. You see, the reason John tells us these things, that it was the day of the preparation of the Passover and that it was noon, is because he wants us to connect what is happening to Jesus with what was happening in the temple at that very moment. You see, it was on this day, at this exact moment, that the high priest would take his knife and raise it over the head of the sacrificial Passover lamb and slit its throat and spill its blood. In that sense, I believe John is inviting us not only to behold the man and to behold our king, but he's also inviting us on another layer, another level, to behold the Lamb of God. You see, of all the gospel authors, John seems to go out of his way to highlight the divinity of Jesus more so than any of the other gospel writers. And yet, in a gospel that goes out of its way, to highlight Jesus' divinity, we also find John drawing a parallel to Jesus as the Lamb of God more so than any of the gospel authors. In fact, it was John who, when he recorded the, the first instance where, where John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, and do you remember what John, John the author of our gospel, tells us was the Baptist's response when he saw Jesus for the first time? He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, there it is again. Look, gaze upon. This is God's sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It's almost as though John is telling us the reason Jesus didn't look very kingly in this moment or doesn't look like what you might expect him to look like because is because our king is also a lamb, the lamb who came to pay for our sins with his own blood. And this is a theme that John draws upon in many of his writings, not just here in his gospel, but in another one of the books that John writes, Revelation, specifically chapter 5. John gives us this powerful glimpse into the heavenly scene. And at one point, he describes in great detail the throne of God and the one who sits upon it, who holds in his hand a scroll, which is none other than the title deed to the planet Earth. And then he hears this angel cry out and say, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And John looks around, and when the angel asks this, nobody moves all of heaven becomes still and silent. And, and so John begins to weep in this moment because no one who was found who was worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders 
said to him, and this is what he said, and I want to read this with you out loud. Go ahead and read it. It's Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Notice these contrasting pictures that get painted here. The angel says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb and he's confused because it's not just any lamb that he sees, but it's a lamb who looks like it's been slain. And what John was seeing in that moment was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And why are his clothes blood stained? Because the penalty of sin is death. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. It also says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, there had to be a payment for sin, which is why Jesus, the King of heaven, left his throne and became a man. He set aside his glory, as it were, and he humbled himself, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And so the king becomes a man, but he doesn't stop there. The man becomes a lamb, and Jesus himself becomes the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And John wants us to know that it's no accident that at the exact moment when the high priest in the temple courtyard raises his knife to slit the throat of the lamb so that the blood of the lamb might be applied to the doorhouse. Remember, this is the Passover. So that the angel of death might pass over. That's the whole picture and God is speaking through this scene and telling us that Jesus is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. Behold your king, church. Behold the man. Behold the lamb of God. And I have another one for you. Behold, he is coming again. Someone say amen. You need to know something, people. The king who became a man who became a lamb, conquered the grave. He rose triumphantly, and now he rules as a lion, and he's coming again. Let's read this verse together. This is our final verse out loud. Revelation 1-7. Behold. There I, I'm sorry, I got off track. I just had to draw your attention. Behold. There it is again. All right, let's try it again. Behold. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus came once, and the first time he came as a lamb. But when he returns, he's coming back as a roaring lion. Someone say amen. In his first coming, he rode on the back of a lowly donkey. But when he returns, he will be on the back of a war horse, a white horse. In his first coming... Almost everyone missed it. There were just a few shepherds and, and some wise men and Mary and Joseph there in the stable. But when he returns, every eye will see him. 
In his first coming, he was by and large rejected, but when he returns, every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the invitation for us tonight, friends, is that we would behold him, that we would allow ourselves to be moved at at a heart level, to be captivated by who he is. He is the son of man and he is the son of God. He is the lamb who was slain and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the suffering servant and he is the king of kings. He's the great I am and the good shepherd and the way and the door and the truth and the life and the vine. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the first and he is the last. He is the beginning and he is the end and he is here with us tonight. Someone say amen. And we're meant to behold him. And I hope that in this moment, you will see through eyes of faith. I have to tell you, this passage of scripture, it moved me and it wrecked me in the most beautiful way this last week. As I was studying and preparing and I I got to that sentence where he says, behold the man, behold your king. And I just, I couldn't look away and I couldn't get past it. And God just kept bringing me back to that over and over again as I saw my, my Lord and my king bloodied and bruised and beaten to the point where I couldn't even recognize him. And yet even in his disfigurement, I saw his eyes, and in his eyes, I saw his heart, and what I saw of his heart was love. And you need to know something. The king who left his throne to become a man, and the man who submitted to death on the cross as a sacrificial lamb, that God His heart is full of love for you. You know, there's one more behold verse that I want to read to you, or quote to you rather. Again, it comes to us from the pen of John the Beloved. And this is what he said. He was so moved, so captivated, so captured by the love of his Jesus that he wrote this in 1 John 3, 1. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.